0: Business Network Podcast.
1: Hello, I'm Fraser Allen, welcome to episode 57. Alison Walker was the first woman to report live on a football match for the BBC. That seems like a significant moment looking back, but it didn't feel like it at the time to Alison because she was so focused on doing a good job despite the hostile attitude of other male reporters. This achievement heralded an outstanding career in sports broadcasting that has included covering seven Olympic games and comparing the Commonwealth Games Athletics event at Hampden Park in 2014. A self-confessed Hamilton Acquis fan, Alison tells the story of her career with great humour and some wonderful anecdotes. But she also discusses why she is campaigning for close relatives to be able to visit their family members in care homes. Her parents suffer from dementia and she hasn't even been able to give them a hug for 10 months. We also close with a song that Alison has co-written as part of the campaign. Alison Walker good morning lovely to speak to you where, where where do we find you today
2: well i'm sitting in my in my flat in my apartment uh, in glasgow um and i'm prepping for this is my burn supper month so i've got a couple of burn suppers that i i speak at and host um and we're going global with them this year because obviously uh, with the pandemic so it's a different kind of challenge uh, to try and engage engage people online but hey, it's become a way of life for everyone, hasn't it?
1: It certainly is, which leads me to my next question, because as someone used to travelling the world reporting on big sporting events, how have you coped with living through the, the pandemic crisis?
2: I'd probably do about three or four a year big events. And so they've obviously all gone um, as of you know March last year. And a lot of them have been rescheduled, like the Tokyo Olympics um but there's still an element of of uncertainty and you know we've got full diaries for this year but none of us really know if they're actually going to go ahead so we just have to try and cope with that uncertainty when when you're a freelance and, and you're kind of used to that a little bit you might have two or three weeks gaps between jobs between events but you you factor that in, in to the way you work um but you're not used to having t- nine or ten months. To mm, yeah. So that is, that is the, the big difference. And, it, and it's about keeping yourself, you know, positive, level-headed, keep, keeping in touch with people, keeping your network going, um, trying to think out of the box about other things you could do. So, so, that's, so that's been a real challenge because when you're freelance, you don't have a regular income. If you don't mm. work, you don't get paid.
1: I know the feeling. Yes, it's a it's a tricky one. So have you been, you know, baking sourdough bread and all those other sort of cliches? Well,
2: well I became you. Know, I, 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 I've done a lot of cooking because one of the decisions I made during lockdown actually was to go vegan. So, and I enjoy cooking. So, so that's that's been a bit of a revelation actually, and I feel an awful lot healthier because when you work at big events, you work with TV crews, you, do, you get TV catering. You, you, mm. it's quite hard to to have a regular. You know diet of of reasonably healthy 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 Mm. foods so so actually that's been a bit of a bonus because i've been able to properly cook uh, and buy buy things that are good for me to to cook with so that's been a bit of a change and that will be a challenge i think next year when i start or this year later this year hopefully when i start Mm. traveling and working again
1: well let's um let's go back to the beginning alison you grew up in glasgow um what was family life like growing up for you? What qualities did you inherit from your parents? And and I'm wondering, what did you dream of, of doing for a career at that time? Was it a TV career? Uh,
2: well, I was born in Glasgow. I actually brought up the first 10, 10 years in Hamilton. Um, oh. My dad's a Hamiltonian, and we all support Hamilton uh, <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, It's sad, but, you know, that's where you're born for, and that's what happens. But... Um, and then we moved to Newcastle. My dad was a GP, uh-huh. uh, is a GP, um, and not now. He's retired, and he's, he's, he's not awfully well. But um, we moved to Newcastle to be closer to my mum's family, who are all from Yorkshire. Um, so actually for the form- formative years, I suppose from 12 to, to sort of mid-20s, we well, yeah, became a Jodie overnight. <laughs> I came to the accent, yeah. I sound like Cheryl Cole. <laughs> and, um, and actually I did adjust my and, and I was good at accents growing up and I used to do a lot of impersonations of animals and can't believe I'm telling you this I've never really told this, <laughs> um, and accents and the thing is when you're 10, 12, 11, 12 you want to be the same as everybody else I didn't mm-hmm. want to be known as the jock from, from <laughs> Scotland and I got an awful lot of stick for my accent so I literally lost my Scottish accent wow. within a week probably right. of, of going to school <laughs> um because I wanted to fit in. I didn't want to be mm. different. so so I was brought up in, you know, Newcastle, um just in a little village just outside. And I've been away from there a long time because I came back to Scotland um uh in my to do my postgrad um and I've been in Scotland ever since. So but actually those ten, twelve, thirteen years in that part of of, of England actually were fantastic years and what great, great people, very, very
1: like the Scots. Obviously, got your, your Scottish accent came back. So, did you drop straight back into it when you returned to Scotland?
2: I, I think it more or less. It wasn't as as quick as that. It kind of mm. gradually. And actually, having a little bit of um, slower English and not Glaswegian, um, you know, filtering w- in wasn't a bad thing because my mom, my mom's quite is quite posh. Actually, she's got a posh Yorkshire accent. You never know mm. she in Yorkshire. So she was very keen on the speaking properly and grammar. Um, right. Not slurring our words, so there was a, a little bit of of that BB, I suppose, almost BBC type accent. And, and you thought in those days, well, if I've got a regional accent, I might not be able to get into the BBC. And the BBC was always my goal, always my goal from being very young. I wanted to be a Blue Peter presenter. Um, you know, my dad was disappointed. I've got three three in a way. I've got three brothers, and none of us went into medicine. None of us. So we've all followed different careers. We've got one brother that's a lawyer, one that's an engineer, um, and one that uh, works for a housing company. So we all avoided medicine. I think we saw how hard he worked, and it was just—it right. was just. My mom was a midwife, so everything was medical um, in the house, and I think that put us off. So, media, TV, film—that was my passion. Always my passion. Um, and 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 my goal you know, I'd stay up and watch movies till one in the morning and then tell mum what happened at the end and but they always encouraged me they were they were great you know they they were they they, they always said work hard, education education education, work hard, perseverance and I think those are the qualities that I've probably learned from them those those main qualities
1: and you demonstrated that drive by going straight into a career in film and video, and you worked as a presenter for Clyde Cablevision. So how did that come about, Alison, and what was the attraction of presenting to you?
2: You know, I didn't really intend, although I wanted to be a Blue Peter presenter, that's true, but I, but I thought a great way of getting into to TV would be to, to be able to, to, to do sound, to be able to do a bit of camera work, to be able to do a bit of production. So I actually worked for a video company as a kind of runner just before I joined Clyde Cablevision, and we filmed a lot of weddings you know, we went out and did corporate stuff as well and filmed weddings and I would be doing a variety of roles. Actually learning those other disciplines gave me a real insight and, and a real breadth of of knowledge, which has is, which is actually stood me in really good stead. I wasn't one of these fluffy bunnies, I want to be a presenter at all. Um, I actually lacked a lot of confidence, believe it or not, in those days. And and it was people that said to me, you know, you've got a really nice voice. You could you could you could report or or you could present. And so, so I was more pushed by other people into that as opposed to getting away from the, you know, from me deliberately getting away um from the the production side. And Clyde Cable Vision was set up um and it was essentially a, a local news channel. Um I remember this, this is some awful video of me with big glasses on and big bushy hair presenting and i think but actually it's it, you know it, it's a product of its time um and those those things those two jobs the one at the video company and the one at Clyde cable enabled me to make that next step into the bbc i'd done the groundwork I'd, I'd learned um quite a bit um and you know that that helped me on my journey no no question of what. i got very badly paid i did terribly long hours every weekend um but you know if if that's if that's what you want and that's what your goal is you have to, you have you have to do that especially in the media where so many people want to do that job um you've you've got to just try and stand up above the rest and do something a bit differently or work harder than anybody else and i think as a woman i felt that too
1: you then moved on to produce sports sound on bbc radio and then into sports presentation roles and you were the first woman to report on football matches live on the BBC. Did that feel like a, a landmark moment at the time?
2: Didn't feel like a landmark at all. I didn't even I wasn't even aware that I was the only woman. I was used to I've got three brothers, so I was used to being in environments where there was there was a lot a lot of men so or a lot of and a lot of boys, because I played a lot of sport. Um and invariably a lot of the girls didn't want to play the sport in those days. So I was always a bit of a, to- I suppose, and I don't like this word tomboy. So because why shouldn't girls be active and play sport? Mm. It just didn't appear to be the norm um, in those days. So so the next, you know, I was never that good at sport physically. Um, I can have a good stab at you know golf and skiing and a bit of running and hockey, but I was never good enough to make it as a, an elite athlete. So the next best thing for me was was being involved in sport as a journalist and being part of live live sport and live live events. So no never thought it was a landmark. I just thought, oh, why I'm the only woman here again. Mm -hmm. Oh well, it's obviously because no other women want to do it. Because women absolutely can do it. But perhaps they're not being given the opportunity. But I didn't think I was the first. I think I didn't think and and Hazel Irving came, Kate joined the BBC around about the same time. But she was in a studio, Mm -hmm. you know, she was presenting. She didn't go to games and I think that for me, that's the difference. Um, when you're in the thick of it, at a football match, and the only female, and you're, you're at the back of a stand and you're sent to a low division game mm. because you're a woman um, and it's freezing and there's one light bulb, there's no crowd, the game's awful. You've travelled two and a half hours to go to this game in mid-November and you think your jaw's frozen because you can't speak and you think, what am I doing? But I just did it because... It was it was, it was was what I wanted to do, and I, and I loved it. And I thought I came home in the car, got the heater on, and I thought, wow, I did that, I did that, and I got a lot of things wrong. Um, but on radio, you can get away with a wee bit more, and I was working in radio at that
1: point. Did you have to overcome much sort of negative receptions? Are you turning up at these these grounds? And was there any kind of, what are you doing here? Are you a woman?
2: Well, do you know, I, I didn't from the clubs. The clubs were... Um, and in fact, I, because I got generally got sent to the same places, uh, they got to know me and they'd have a right. cup of tea waiting for me. I'd say, oh, Alice, great, Alison's here again. And I got a lovely welcome. The small clubs, the big clubs, the players, the managers were never a problem. The main problem I had was with other press journalists, written newspaper journalists who'd been around a long time, guys in their kind of 50s and 60s who were used to doing everything a particular way and it had been that way for thousands of years and how dare I as a woman come into their midst um, and especially in radio where I could get the story out before them so there was an awful lot of resentment the newspaper guys used to huddle in their groups and decide what the story would be and deliberately exclude um, me or anyone from radio because they felt they felt threatened But there were one or two who were were fine Um, and you've just got to muddle your way through that, to be honest, and and develop a thick skin, but it was tough. I used to go home crying after some of these football press conferences because I was excluded. Um, But the managers, the players were never, never a problem. Uh, Sometimes people in the BBC, sometimes the managers, the old editors in the BBC in sport were a bit difficult and that's why they sent me to the lower division games because they thought, well, she can't cause much upset there. Um, and it, it was beginning to change. They were beginning to get a bit of pressure from above to be more inclusive um, about um, women being involved in, in sport and in particular football. But they were dragging their heels screaming with that.
1: Well, of course, it's changed now completely as well. There's a, a lot of women re- reporting live on on football, on the radio in particular, do you sort of do you have much sort of contact with other female presenters and reporters? Do you sort of find yourself almost kind of informally mentoring some of them?
2: It's more of still encouragement because women still laugh and still, still lack rather an awful lot of um, I not say confidence because I think I think the young girls are a lot more confident now than I ever was. I I even dressed I even dressed like a man in those days, so I wouldn't be i wouldn't be different uh, i just wanted to slot in to fit in to be a journalist not a female journalist not a male journalist but just a journalist i just wanted to be part of that world and i think the girls now they go out they wear what they like you know it's it seems they they walk into grounds it's not it's not a problem there's so many platforms now um, for them to get involved, the opportunities are, are all there. In, when I started, there was one radio station. We only had the five channels on TV. Uh, there was no social media. Um, you didn't even have mobile phones. So, so the platforms were quite restricted uh, when I started. But it meant you got an awful lot of exposure. Um, you know, we get huge audiences for per sports scene and for Radio Scotland Sports Sounds. So. You were noticed more, whereas you know a lot of the girls out there are not noticed in the same way, and it's good because it means they're just getting on with their job and not having that hassle. If if mm. if if they were going to get that hassle, so if anybody comes to me or see anybody on social media, you know, say I'm going to do Aloha against these five, I'll send them message saying, "Good on you, get fucking <laughs> and do a good job." And I still get frustrated because I think particularly in Scotland, it's still quite chauvinistic. Um, the news organisations and the, um, I'm not pointing any fingers, but, you know, you will not see women going to the top games in Scotland, put it that way. Right, Yet, yet.
1: Yes, indeed. It's it's coming. (laughs) People, um, you know, presenters such as yourself, Alison, I always think you make it look very easy when you're on screen, but I I imagine it must be quite, quite a difficult thing to do because you've got people speaking to you in your earpiece and all kinds of... Uh, deadlines in terms of time to, to bear in mind. Can you give us a bit of an insight into what that's all like?
2: In, in studio and is, is a lot more comforting when you're in a studio. If you're out and about doing a live OB outside broadcast, uh, anything can happen. <laughs> <laughs> the, the weather can happen. The, the umbrella can turn inside out. The auto autocue can go down. Your papers can fly away. Somebody's talking in your ear. Um, and the best advice I was ever given, actually, was from Doogie Donnelly. You said, Alison, don't make your audience feel uncomfortable. If you're uncomfortable, they'll be uncomfortable. So right. just keep smiling, just keep smiling <laughs> all the way through. And actually, that's that's something that you know I've kind of um, remembered. Um, right. Just and just keep going. You, you, you manage, and that comes with experience as well and knowledge an experience um, and and things you know live there's nothing more exciting than than live broadcasting if you're telling somebody something at that moment live there's a mm-hmm. huge um adrenaline rush um and it gives you such a big kick you have to have a bit of an ego to to get out there um and do that i remember when i was asked to do the afternoon results program at quarter to 5 on a on a saturday and you've got somebody constantly telling you scores and updates in your ear while you're talking. And basically you are repeating them. You're repeating them almost as soon as you hear it in, in your ear. And at the end of the show, uh, I'd get home um, and my husband and kids would ask me, oh, what was the Partick Thistle score today? And I'm going, Do you know, I haven't a clue. <laughs> I haven't a clue. What was the score? And I'd, I'd obviously said it, but it's you're repeating it verbatim. And mm. um, and you're relying on a very good producer to to get that information to you because you you have to trust them to do that because it's coming straight out of your mouth because you want it out there as quickly as possible before anybody else so there's always those those deadlines um and it's it's uh, that definitely comes with experience and it's obviously a lot more difficult on t v because you have to look um and act as well as say the words. So you don't want anybody to know that you're, you're hearing all this information um, in your ear. But I tell you, it you, you got to the point actually where I didn't find it easy, but it's, it, it, it was just a way of working. And I tell you, speaking to a live audience, and, and, and I think a lot of people listening who do public speaking, you're know, speaking directly to real people, not half a million people down a camera tube, is a mm. lot more difficult than, than speaking to a TV camera. Really and that that, yeah. that is that is a real challenge. Um mm-hmm. and actually when you do it well and you can get out there, you get an every bit as good a buzz from that as you do for from doing live TV. But real people where you can see them and, and they look at you and, and you usually pick on one face in particular. You know, and the public speaking is something I've really got into um after I left the BBC and actually mm. the training at the BBC doing the live stuff um has really helped has really helped me with that.
1: The second half of the interview continues in a few seconds after this. Do you need a communications expert to help you with your marketing, brand storytelling, or strategic content? Find out what I, Fraser Allen, can provide at www.allencoms.co.uk. That's Allen with two L's and an E, and comms with two M's. And it sort of... Part of, a big part of your career, big highlight of your career has been the Olympic Games because I, I think you've covered something like seven of them. Um, so with hopefully Japan coming up later this year, it would be fun to to get you to reflect on some of your your favourite experiences over the years.
2: Yeah, I think your first one's always going to be quite special, and that was Sydney 2000. Um, And the Australians love their sport. They just love their sport. And that that was my first, you know, major gig. Um, Although I'd been to the Commonwealth Games in in Kuala Lumpur in 1998 and uh, Victoria in Canada in 94 as well. That was my first big away trip. But Sydney was spectacular because it was the 2000, it was the millennium, um And I went there to report on the the Scottish athletes uh, at the games um and it was just it was just a mind blowing experience. I was all set to move to Australia after that with the the kids and my husband It was I was just so taken with the country and their approach to outdoor life and and the sport and the weather uh of course, I was doing interviews outside in the outdoor swimming pools with athletes, and I thought this was- you never do this in Scotland. Oh, and that, I'm sure you,
1: you'd miss the Scottish weather before.
2: Oh, no, I'm sure. Well, absolutely, <laughs> you know Scotland. Whenever you go on a trip, you think, "Could I live here? Could Could this be a way of life?" And and then Scotland always comes back to you. It's a it's a weird, sad thing almost. <laughs>
1: um,
2: so yes, yeah, Sydney was very special, um, and there was there was so many great stories connected with it, non Scots stories. Kathy um, Freeman, I remember, was the first Aboriginal. Um, athlete to take part for Australia and she won gold in the 400 meters and she carried the aboriginal flag at the opening ceremony so that was a massive massive deal at that time Um, and those those kind of and that's where sport brings everybody together generally speaking which I love Um, and my other main highlight was actually covering the uh, winter games in Pyeongchang in Korea uh, because I got to commentate on the opening ceremony uh, for for the host broadcaster, um, which went out all over the world, and I got to commentate when the North Korea and South Korea marched into the stadium together, and those kinds of things are really really significant, um, and you feel a bit of emotion because there's a lot of mm. build up to something like that, and you get to see it, and it's a bit of history being made. So so that was that was very so I suppose Sydney being my first and and Pyeongchang on the opening ceremony. Have, have to be highlights um but London 2012 was a, was a mega highlight as well because I got to go to the cycling and I know Sir Chris Hoy quite well um and when he got his sixth gold medal um I was in the kind of the pit where the the cameras were all standing and he actually saw me and he came over and he gave me a hug I said oh. that's amazing Chris you were there for my very first one in um, mm. Beijing, and here you are now, and and you do get to know athletes over their careers as well, and that's a real privilege to 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 get into their world, um, and be part of that, and go and bask in their in their glory. So, probably those those three.
1: But uh, another highlight must have been the the Commonwealth Games in Scotland uh, in 2014, uh, when you were comparing the athletics events at Hampden. That must have been a pretty exciting experience.
2: Oh, that was like getting up with a big smile on my face every <laughs> single day thinking, I'm off to Hamden again, you know, and 40,000 people um, crammed in. And a lot of them wouldn't normally go to, to watch athletics at all, but it was, it, was, it was getting them involved and engaging them. And everybody in Glasgow got in board, on board for the Commonwealth Games. We wanted to make it the best games ever the friendliest games and everybody did they totally this city was transformed during that period um, and it's such when I think about it now and where we are now I was in the streets of I was walking the streets of Glasgow well, I had to go to the dentist yesterday and I had to walk and it was deserted and sad and I thought gosh when I think what the Commonwealth Games did for the city and the country and how amazing that was I thought we desperately need to get that kind of thing back again and get back on track but my my, one of my highlights of that week that 10 days doing the athletics was was the Usain Bolt Usain Bolt in Scotland we never thought we'd see that happen the world champion the world record holder, fastest man in the world and um it was my mission I thought I need to get an interview with him so after he won the relay with Jamaica um I thought that's going to be my moment so before the before the um the uh, ceremony for his medal. We were sitting in the Hamden kind of area, the tunnel area, and I went up to him, I said, you seen Alison, I'm I'm one of the, I'm the compare here. Um, Would you mind doing a quick interview after you've got your medal? And he said, yeah, no problem. And I tapped, I touched him on the leg. I said, well, I'll come and get you. And he said, that's, that's no problem, no problem. Um, So he went out, got his medal, sang the national anthem. And I thought, right, this is my moment. This is my moment. But as soon as he got off the podium, he started to go towards the crowd to do high fives and selfies, and he was getting further and further away from me and my microphone, and I thought, I cannot let this opportunity go. I need to be able to tell my grandchildren that I am mm-hmm. I using Bolt. And so there's this bizarre moment where I'm actually running down the 100 metres track, chasing you see, chasing same boat, the fastest man in the world, tried to get my interview. And of course, as soon as he saw me, he remembered. And he came over and he grabbed me and he put his arm around me and we held the microphone together. And I think he wanted to address the crowd himself. And I thought, I'm not letting him get my microphone. <laughs> so was so like a bizarre kind of Gay Gordon's moment um, where he... Because he's huge. He's absolutely huge because he enveloped me. Um, and he said some brilliant things about Glasgow, about the Commonwealth Games, about the crowd. And I said, do you think you'll ever come back? He said, oh, who knows what happens in the future? I'd love to come back. Glasgow has been the best place I've been to ever. So he, what a great PR machine, machine he is and was. So that was, I said, well, thank you, saying. I'm so pleased I caught you. Mm-hmm. He says, well, I can be pretty fast, you know. <laughs> so honestly, that, that was a great moment. And I was in his glow and basked in that glory of, of that interview. For, and I still do, actually. I love telling that story. I love it.
1: That's a that's a great claim to fame. You, you caught up with Usain Bolt. Um, so now, Alison, you're working as a freelance presenter. I think you're doing some sort of corporate work as well, or at least obviously were doing more of that before um, COVID struck. So what, what, when things get back to a kind of normal again, what will your kind of mix of work like be like? Do you think, and and what sort of things would you like to do in the future?
2: Yeah, it's looking a bit like a, just almost a, a re a rehash of last year with with Tokyo. So I'll have the Tokyo Olympics, the Paralympics, possibly the Ryder Cup. Um, that's a, that's an addition, um, and. Uh, a, you know a c- couple of athletics events that'll be compre I do quite a lot of corporate hosting as well when i'm in in the country and I do do curling I work at the world championships um for men and women and the europeans so so those are kind of the the sporting uh, events I'm looking at and then in between that you know voiceovers uh corporate events and I was also thinking um you know, a bit out of the box about my presentation skills, my writing skills, and I was actually thinking at one point of becoming a humanist celebrant. So, you know, because that doesn't involve sport, I could work a bit more at home. If the pandemic continues, then, you know, that could be a good... good kind of side thing that I could do so so I'm still thinking about that there's no obviously no training at the moment because because of COVID so that that might be a bit of more long-term plan um so and I think you've got you've got to think what do I have here what skills do I have that I'm not using that I could use in another area that might work for me if there's no sport on so, and I think people, you know, a lot of people at this time have been thinking out of the box, particularly if they're freelance. And I know the government said at one point, retrain, didn't they? Retrain if you're a musician, retrain to do something. I mean, but, but but I think there's some, there's a nub of something in there. Look at the skills you have. Look at the things you've learned and think, how could I possibly adapt that into something else? Because I've got to still earn a living. I can't, you know, there are no handouts really for freelancers.
1: Very good advice that's relevant to a lot of people at the moment. Now, the young Alison Walker who moved into the world of radio and TV sounds like a, a driven person who knew what she wanted to do. But if you could give her some advice now, what would it be?
2: Oh, i will lighten up, Alison. i lighten up. Honestly, stop being so intense. I was so focused, so intense, so kind of desperate to to. to To succeed, I kind of let, I'm not sure, I fretted, I beat myself up about getting the tiniest thing wrong. Um, I remember um, I was doing a live outside uh, Ibrox Stadium, it's a Champions League or League game or European Championship game, I can't remember, Rangers, Rangers were playing, and I was doing a live and talking to the camera and saying, and I said, and the Manchester United manager, and I forgot who he was. I forgot the name, Sir Alex Ferguson. And I, and I looked at my notes. It wasn't on cue because it was all live. So I was remembering it. It was a photographic, you know, live memory thing. And I forgot it. And actually, it probably only was about five or six seconds, but it felt like five minutes and and his name came back to me, and it all came out in a jumble. Sir Alex Ferguson. And um, and I finished the the bronc, and I was so angry with myself. And I said to my son, he says, "How did your how did you get on?" I said, um, "I said oh, you, I forgot the name of the Manchester United manager." He says, "Well, it's Sir Alex Ferguson." I said, "I know it's Sir Alex Ferguson." And but that's an example of I I didn't sleep that night because I thought oh my God, I got that wrong. And the thing was, it wasn't without justification in terms because there were a lot of people around me were waiting for me to make mistakes because I was, because I was a woman. So that intensity w- was caused by the world I was working in at that time. So I just wish I could have stood up for myself a bit more and enjoyed it a bit more and lightened up a bit more and not beat myself up so much. Um, and the other bit of advice I would have given myself I, I don't I don't know um, yeah, enjoy it a bit more. I wish it had a bit more confidence. I wish it had a bit more confidence to dress as I pleased um but again that was the world I was in. Um, I worked so hard, I did so much prep and I think doing the preparation for anything is ab- absolutely I was determined that nobody was going to say, oh well, she doesn't know what she's talking about.
1: Changing the subject a little um, and sort of moving back to the, the pandemic crisis, you, you've you've been a, a high-profile campaigner for allowing close family to visit relatives in, in care homes and this is quite a personal issue for you, isn't it, Alison? Could you explain the importance of this and what you'd like to see happen?
2: Uh, yeah, so that's been 10 months. My, both my mum and dad uh, are in a care home with dementia um, and have been for five years. And my dad, actually, the family has been managing my dad's dementia since, since oh, gosh, it's been nine or ten years now. So family have kind of lived with it a long time. Um, my mum wasn't as bad as my dad, and we kept her going really quite well and kept her stable mentally um, until the pandemic kicked in. And, of course, not allowed to visit, not allowed to have any time. And if you've got dementia, you can't do this. You cannot speak online. You can't really speak on the telephone. You need physical touch and contact and reassurance and reconnection and of course all that was wiped and has been wiped for the last 10 months. Um, so yeah I've been campaigning, we've written a song, we've been at the government, we've been on protest marches um, and the thing is what really really gets us is that not, not we want to be with them because they're they're at their end of their lives and fact they need to be with family. but one designated caregiver getting in with full PPE and testing is no different from a care worker going in with the same access. Um, mm. so that's what we've been campaigning for since probably June last year. I mean, at the start, we realised everything had to be locked down to keep everyone safe. That was fine. But actually, there's a very fine balance between protecting, protecting somebody of that age from COVID and the decline in generally their isolation their separation from family and the decline that that brings as well. Um, and the balance was tipped and is tipped too much the other way. Um, and 300, 300, I think, um, care home residents die each week in care homes. And most of them have had no meaningful contact with family since March last year. And that's just wrong. Morally, ethically, scientifically and medically wrong. Um, but, you know, we, we'll keep fighting, but we haven't made a huge amount of progress. But it's something I really, I really believe in, you know, and dementia is a ticking time bomb um, because a lot of people are very stressed. Um, and the Alzheimer's Society is saying that they, they fear early onset of Alzheimer's in a lot, an awful lot of people as a result of the pandemic, you know, going forward. So this is going to be a huge issue for the country. Um, I was very vocal about raising awareness about dementia before all this and I'll continue to do it um, because so much research goes on cancer and very little goes on dementia and that's that's going to hit all of us, you know, like cancer does, dementia will mm. be the same. So, But the first first primary aim is to try and get in to see and be with my mum and dad and give my mum and dad a hug before the inevitable happens um, and they're not with us anymore. And, that, and that's really tough. It's, it keeps you awake at night, very tough.
1: It must, it must be really difficult. And, and you mentioned a song there, Alison, and I believe that you actually wrote the lyrics to the song that has been put out there called Let Me In. And um, we're going to play that at actually at the end of this episode, if that's okay. Yeah, yeah.
2: Um, um, I, I do, managing my parents' dementia, you know, I found writing poetry quite therapeutic. So I've, I've done that the last seven or eight years. You know, if I've come back from the care home and i have had a bad a bad t- type visit with them or you know, Mum doesn't know me, or you know, you know, you know, I wrote a poem, for example, called The Car Is a Good Place to Cry. Um, and that really, that helped me when I got back. So the, so I would it takes twenty minutes to get to the care home. So but by the time I got in the car and got home, I was better again. So and in the car nobody can see you, you can just go for okay. it and you get it all out, and then you get home. And the kids are here, and you're and you're fine because you don't want to put it on them as well. So, so poetry and doing that was was a bit of therapy for me. And somebody actually said, actually, that would make a really good song. You should write a chorus, and that's how it developed. And and a whole load of people got involved and 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 helped. We did approach some very high profile singers, funnily enough, and I won't name names, but they all mm. know. twice. They all said no, and then um, the engineer who actually composed the music, Gordon McNeil of, of Stella Sound, he said, look, I, I, I've been in a band with, with uh, this girl, and she's absolutely brilliant. Let me see if she can do it. And so she did, and actually she's incredible. Uh, and she's got a band called Redwood Ridge, and she's the, she, and it was perfect. And, do you know, because she's she doesn't have any gigs, what she did was she worked in a care home in the summer so she saw a direct result of the isolation and the separation on care home residents. So she just added another element to it, um, an understanding. And and I think folk, when they hear the song, will we'll, we'll feel and hear that.
1: Well, we are going to hear that shortly. But before we do, I've got five quick-fire questions for you, Alison. Are you ready to... Have a crack at these. Okay. Uh, okay. So what was the first record you ever bought?
2: I had to really think about this because my dad my dad was country and Western fan, so it was country and Western music all over the place. I had a boyfriend who was into Lindisfarne in the and um, So I think that was the one, you know, meet me on the corner, fog on the time, whether that will resonate with people. Um, and we...
1: I, I actually bought that album too.
2: Oh, right. Okay. Good. There you go. <laughs> um, I don't think the boyfriend lasted, but I got quite into it. <laughs> um,
1: who's your hero?
2: My hero's my mum. My mum encouraged me and said, you can do anything you want to do. Uh, never uh, treated me exactly the same as my brother's um and just supported me all the way through my my whole career you can do this you know even when I went on crying from the BBC because I'd had a bad day she would phone phone me up and say you show them Alison don't you give up so so my mum and all the way she's stoically you know gone through her dementia uh, a really strong woman um and and just absolutely the key person in my life
1: where is your favorite place in the world
2: Gosh, this is this is so difficult. It's generally the last place I've been to because I, I, I love the people. I loved Rio. I love Buenos Aires. I actually went to Zanzibar for um, a birthday party. Zanzibar's in Tanzania um, and a little island. And actually the people there were just fabulous. So Zanzibar is probably my favourite at the moment. Um, but another highlight would be Banff in um, Alberta, in Canada. Because it's just a bigger version of Scotland, I think. Mm. Um, so, so those two stood out for me. But looking forward to Japan this year, and maybe getting away a wee few days after after Tokyo to do a wee bit of touring and, and seeing Japan. So, Japan might be my new favourite.
1: Well, oh, I'll have to check back in a few months' time. Um, what's for dinner?
2: Uh, well, dinner, dinner. I think I've I did a big pot of sweet uh, potato and bean stew. So, I think that probably will. We'll get a run out today. I've, froze, I've frozen some of it, so I'll probably get a run out today because I'm quite busy today.
1: Sounds very healthy. And finally, what is your favourite moment ever in sport?
2: I can't. I cannot give you that. <laughs> there are just too, too many. I haven't talked much about golf. Um, being there, seeing the last putt going in the Ryder Cup in France and at Glen Eagles was just um, an amazing moment. Um, and the Solheim Cup with the women at... Uh, uh, Glen Eagles last 2018 wasn't it? And I was commentating. I was commentating, and I got into the the melee to interview um, the, the players who'd uh, who'd done the business for for Europe. So 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 that was amazing. Seeing Usain Bolt in London 2012, you know, when there, um, gosh, j- just too many. On a really personal note, as a Hamilton Ackies fan, uh, when we won promotion to the Premier League um, at home at New Douglas Park. And then we beat Hibbs in a playoff another year mm. to get in into the Premier League. Those those are very personal sporting moments because it's with my son and my brother um and my my niece. So it's quite nice that and I miss that in football. I miss I miss that banter we get at the football. And hopefully that will it's quite nice to go to a game and not
1: work and just enjoy it. Well, Alison Walker, it's been wonderful listening to you. Thank you very much.
2: Thank you for having me on. I've really, really enjoyed it. It's quite unusual for me to talk about me and not ask you questions. I know,
1: it's role <laughs> reversal.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: If you enjoyed this episode, why not subscribe to the podcast and explore earlier episodes by going to Apple Music, Spotify, or any of the usual podcast platforms? Simply search for Scottish Business Network. Here is the song we discussed earlier. It's called Let Me In, and it's sung by Jess Houghton with music written by Gordon McNeil and the words written by Alison Walker.
0: It's gone on for far too long Time is running out to ride right the wrong Keeping them locked away Blocked by a wind- Face, let me in, let me in. You know it's the right thing to do. We need it, they need us, and it's all about the love. Your brain doesn't work like it used to do inside. You know. Just hang on, keep being strong Telling you it won't To find out more about the Scottish Business Network, simply visit sbn.scot.